0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily podcast. Today is Monday, June 6, 2022. So we this is the anniversary of D-Day and of course the anniversary of the Six-Day War. I think it is um 55 years since the Six-Day War. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always executive editor Abe Greenwald, hi Abe. Hi John. And associate editor Noah Rothman, hi Noah. Hi John. So much to talk about. So very quickly, we had a uh, we had what the press instantly described as a mass shooting in Philadelphia over the weekend. This is not funny. It's terrible. South Street, a very popular nightlife spot in Philadelphia. You know, open air bars, people strolling on the streets, a wash and gunfire at 1130 Saturday night. Mass shooting says the say the media another mass shooting in america so this was not a mass shooting this was a a, this was gunfighting following a physical altercation between two or three people uh one of the people shot one of the people who died was one of the shooters another got away from the cops uh, and there were two dead people who were innocent bystanders and some wounded. But the point here is that it's not like the shooters were working together like the Columbine kids and were deliberately shooting into the crowd to kill as many people as possible. This was a some kind of gang fight or some version of a you know shootout that ended up having horrible ancillary consequences. And once again, we have the media conflating Uh, things that cannot be conflated and and changing the story on what is actually the reason for the spike in gun violence in the United States which isn't these uh, horrible black swan mass shooting events where somebody decides to go somewhere and kill defenseless people for the purpose of racking up a death toll it is the uh, spike in violence among the violent uh, and we can discuss why there was a spike in violence among the very violent in the United States, and how much bail reform and le- small, lower, you know, smaller sentences, and the sense that um, uh, you may not get prosecuted for lower-level crimes, things like that, are contributing to all of this. But that is the Chicago story, where I think 600 people have been shot in the past year, just to give you a sense of the distinction here 600 people shot in the last year uh 1200 were shot in 2021 so the pace is a little less so people who want to like happy talk it say well i mean it's not as bad as 2021 you know mazel Tov, there's also like six you know six months to go and new york which has also seen a, a huge you know increase in violent crime and shootings new york twice the size of chicago has 296 shootings as of today. So uh, Abe.
1: Yeah. Before we get to the why, I just want to dwell on the shell game that's going on here Um, in, in calling these types of events mass shootings. These are not mass shootings. These are what we have been complaining about for two years. It's a crime problem. It's a violent crime problem. And the people who have been happy talking that, who've been saying that conservatives and right wingers are exaggerating and uh, they, they, they only perceive this, this threat more than the reality. The people who are currently happy talking it in San Francisco, by the way, uh, tr- trying to make the case that, that uh, Chesa Boudin uh, has not presided over a rise in, in, in uh, property theft and violent crime. These are the ones who now turn around and say, say "America has a gun problem." These crazy right wingers—they—they—they—they—they they're, 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 they just want to see more deaths. This is preposterous and maddening. So tomorrow, but also, I mean, yeah. just one more point. Yeah, I mean, sorry. this comes right up against, you know, what has, up until the recent actual mass shootings, been foremost on uh, liberal media's mind and liberals generally, uh, which is. Uh, defunding the police. I mean, this is what more police this is why we want more police. This is what plain closed units are, are supposed to do. Get guns off the city streets. These are things that you've been against up until this moment. Uh, by
0: the way, two, two, two points there, one of which is so what we have is this general liberal idea. Let's say people don't think that the police should be defunded. Uh, on the left, but I think we're liberals. But they, but they generally do think that there's been an epidemic of over policing. Right, we're overcharging. There's too much punishment. You know, we need to. You know, we need to find different me- different ways of dealing so that we don't have enormous numbers of people in prison. That's not good. All of that. And now, of course, what we have in front of us in the wake of the Uvalde shooting is an image of under policing that America is outraged by the uh, inability or refusal or whatever of the Uvalde Police Department to, um, to to do something about what was going on inside the Robb Elementary School, just as people reared an outrage uh, at Parkland when, when the Parkland shooter in Florida also seemed to be having his way inside the building without much in the way of interdiction. So we actually have like real world examples of bad policing that that are the result of under policing, and people are like furious, and everybody's furious on all sides of the political spectrum. Tomorrow in California is the primary. Of one of the major issues in that primary locally will be the effort to recall Chesa Boudin, the DA in San Francisco. And there was a big story in the New York Times, I think, on Sunday, effectively defending Chesa Boudin from the charge that the enormous spike in uh, civil decay, let's say in, in San Francisco uh, is something for which he should pay with his, you know, with his uh, disemployment or his removal from office. And what was interesting about the piece is that it simultaneously acknowledged that he was elected in 2019. And from 2019 until the present, things have gotten a lot worse, but it's not his fault. Because the problem is not his prosecution strategy. The problem is that things have gone bad in the city uh, and that that's not his fault. It's the pandemic. It maybe could be the police department. There was a, a weird hint in the piece, an undercurrent in the piece that suggests the police are deliberately making crime worse in order to affect his recall. I mean, the the piece doesn't come out and say that, but there's sort of these weird hints that he has bad relationships with the police department. And when asked why they hadn't done more, the police department wouldn't answer the question, whatever. It's a weird thing. And what's interesting is that statistically, practically, the numbers are he's elected in 2019. The city falls into an open sewer and he's not responsible for it because the fact that he had announced that he wasn't they weren't going to prosecute low-level offenses, Uh, you know, you can't prove that because he said he was going to not prosecute low-level offenses that then low-level offenses spiked or that, you know, he wasn't going to do much about things like burglaries and then burglaries in residential neighborhoods, particularly in affluent residential neighborhoods, spike now. why would burglaries in an affluent neighborhood in a wealthy city you know tech millionaires and billionaires living there why would they spike uh, because we know that burglaries often take place in the neighborhoods of the poor and the lower middle class because of exigency because that's where that's there, that's what criminals know that's where they break in that's that's what they do uh, it's because they no longer believe that the that the wealthy in San Francisco had a police department that was especially looking out for it, right? I mean, or that or that this they had a political system that would, you know, come down like a ton of bricks on you if you broke into a ten million dollar house. Well, guess what? It won't. So you should probably go burgle a ten million dollar house instead of an apartment in a you know in a housing complex, if you're going to burgle. After all, nobody's got a gun. Nobody's got a gun in that house. So uh it, it was it's a fascinating like rear guard effort to kind of you know help him a little bit or say it's really too bad because these are you know, this is this is so complicated. It's not complicated. Chessa Boudin is an object lesson in what happens when bad policy is implemented, and it just so happens that he is in a state in which the recall provision is very easily triggered, as we know, because obviously Gavin Newsom had to go through a recall process. And 20 years ago, next year, I think it was next year, uh, Gray Davis, the governor of California, was in fact recalled. So, you know, you can't do it in New York. It's very hard. There's there's, there's not much in the way of recall in New York or other places, but here we have it.
1: And, And these defenses act as if this is all a Republicans pounce issue. Uh, as if uh, conservatives are painting an inaccurate portrait of what's going on in California and what Poudin has been up to. The fact is, this comes from people who live there. They are the ones who are dissatisfied, who feel unsafe, who know the lived reality. You can't argue against that. It is literally liberals being mugged by reality. Right. You
0: know, conservatives, are liberal... Is a, a liberal who's been mugged, right? That the joke is conservative a liberal who has been mugged, and then and then Irving Kristol's line is a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Well, so this piece begins with the sagas of two women who are leading the recall, one of whom says when she lived in Cleveland, everybody thought she was a communist, and the other is a you know social justice activist, and her house was burgled. And the other one is a grandmother who was looking at street crime and saying, I'm not just had a grandchild and was like. I'm not going to be able to take my kid, my my grandchild out in the stroller for fear that something will happen to my grandchild. We've got to do something about Chesa Boudin. These are, this is not, there are no Republicans. There are no Republicans. Three generations ago, San Francisco was a Republican city. It is now the most, you know, it's the most left-leaning major city in America and, you know they're gonna he he's gonna be recalled you think there was a poll that this week that showed it really tight well i think if it's tight he's probably going to get recalled because the question is who goes out to, to vote in the primary are you going to go out to vote in the primary to defend him or are you going to go out are you going to drag yourself to the polls in a place where otherwise very little is being contested like you know there's no there's no congressional race uh in, in the city of san francisco so uh if you look at numbers like that you got to figure that the people who are coming out are coming out to vote against and you are therefore probably more likely to see a Chesavudine recall than otherwise um but i i do think that it is very important to note this game this game this mass shooting game it, it is not that it, these are not mass shootings. Obviously 14 people get injured in a shoot and shoot in a, you know, in a shooting incident in Philadelphia, that can be called a mass shooting. It is just not the same mass shooting as the mass shooting in, in Uvalde. It has a different meaning. It has a different provenance. And it's about something else. Uh, the, the Of course the DA in philadelphia who was also a progressive prosecutor larry krasner tweeted out that you know the only way to stop what happened on south street is to you know bankrupt the nra so good luck to everybody in philadelphia i'm sure you're really going to enjoy the continuing lack of safety that is the hallmark of the current life that you lead uh, not that we in new york are, you know uh, things are a little better here i mean they're a lot better here in many ways uh, because uh, even our new DA in Manhattan has been mugged by reality a little bit uh, after saying that he wouldn't prosecute anything and all of that. And uh, uh, the New York numbers are bad, by the way, and they're bad for Eric Adams, you know, who's newly installed. Like he came in to uh, vowing to deal with public safety, six months in the job, and pretty much everything is worse vastly worse uh and i was speaking to a democratic operative last week who said well look what he inherited and look how bad de blasio was and all of that and my answer was well you know he ran on this one issue so if you say you're gonna you know you're gonna make sure that the garbage is picked up on the street uh, as your campaign issue and then you become mayor and then the garbage collection is worse not better uh you are basically going to be you know fried and left out to die on the street for failing to deliver on your campaign promise so you know it's very hard he's got to deal with albany he's got this he's got that he's got the other thing it doesn't matter like he's the one who said elect me so i can do something about public safety and public safety is getting worse that's what elective electoral democracy is like which is why we should get to our big topic today which is and we're back to it we talked about it all last week poor joe biden Poor Joe Biden. He just can't catch a break. What with every policy that he has instituted failing and actively failing based on the fact that he made changes that put those that made those policies more urgent and put them gave them more power. And now they're failing. And, you know, the White House staff just doesn't understand how they can get their message out. So now they're talking about sending him on the road. They would send him on the road. He's going to he's going to chair a meeting of the, the Americas Commission and he's going to go here and there and just talk. Let him be Biden. Let him be charming and and himself and make gaffes and lick ice cream and do you know, be the wonderful magical figure that he was in 2020 that had the secret sauce that made everybody vote for him, much of which involved him sitting in his basement and not doing anything. I will I will remind you anyway. So um, when they start talk, when they start reading the stage directions and saying the problem is that people are not letting Joe Biden be Biden, it is time to call the Hevra Kedisha. It is time to, you know, if you uh, that the Hevra Kedisha, I I, for those who for those who know what I'm talking about, I'm going to leave it there. But, you know, it's time to buy the makeup for the undertakers is is partially what I'm what I'm saying, because you are not that is not a good that is not a good look. And we have two pieces to talk about in that in that regard. Uh, Noah, why don't we start with the uh, with the saga of poor Joe Biden? He had a build back better deal and then just something happened
2: yeah um, that something was apparently to to take the Washington Post's piece on this at face value. Joe Manchin, who's very sensitive, he's a fragile thing, that Joe Manchin. um so this very long piece about how the White House lost Joe Manchin um stipulates essentially that there are very few policy distinctions between what progressives wanted to achieve and what Joe Manchin would stomach. Um, they were you know, middling details that could have been ironed out, but the straw that broke the camel's back amid these very prolonged negotiations and probably painful negotiations uh, was a statement a press release that the White House um, put out essentially blaming Joe Manchin for the impasse. Now it was run past Joe Manchin and his office said, please take my name out of it or throw Kirsten Cinemas in there, too, because she's with me on this. And the White House subsequently published it without doing what Joe Manchin asked. And his office was very upset about this. And Joe Manchin was very upset about this. He had been beset by protesters. His family was getting threats. So he thought this was an irresponsible act. And that, to hear The Washington Post tell it, is the beginning, middle and end of this impasse that subsequently scuttled Build Back Better. Um, even now, today, in, amid negotiations over a much more slimmed-down package, which I don't think are going anywhere, um, this, this hurt, this wound, continues to fester. Uh, and it is plainly Joe Manchin's fault in the, in the subtext of this piece that he has just subordinated the, the importance of this uh, economy-shaping legislation to his
0: own hurt feelings okay so i'm going to read a little bit from this piece which is called how the white house lost joe mansion and its plan to transform america by jeff stein and tyler pager okay um here's what the piece says um the breakdown last year remains baffling to many close to both mansion and senior white house officials Biden aides are still in disbelief that, ab- that mansion abandoned months of painstaking negotiations seemingly in an instant over what they regarded as an innocent statement that they, they, they did not believe would offend the senator. They are left wrestling with the question of how legislation of such historic dimensions appears to have been doomed by a simple miscommunication over a news release. Manchin's allies do not understand why the White House would have done anything to needlessly provoke the key vote for their legislative aspirations and believe the administration had already ignored its demand for weeks. I'm going to go on and quote some other things, but I'm going to say right now that this is absurd. This is absurd. According to this, Manchin and Biden had agreed on a Build Back Better package that would cost 1.75 or 1.85 billion, trillion, excuse me. Uh, And that that deal was done. That is not true. We were all privy to this. All this happened in public for months. (laughs) Knowledge that Manchin said that his number was 1.5 trillion. Now, could he have abandoned that and gone up to 1.8 or 85 trillion or whatever it was? I suppose he could, but the very fact that the White House released this statement, and I want to find the language in the statement, itself indicates that they did not believe that he was fully on board. They released a statement, the purpose of which was to pressure him further into staying on board, not to say, wow, this is going so well we're just going to keep it quiet until we can bring Manchin to the White House and in a huge display of our political success, say we have a deal on Build Back Better, right? Like that, that's what you want, right? So it says on December 14th, progress suddenly appeared to be at hand. Biden agreed to resolve Manchin's complaints about, the, about temporary programs, a move, whatever, it doesn't matter. Striking a conciliatory tone, the president told Manchin he was doing the right thing and withholding his support if Manchin did not believe the measure was good for West Virginia. Manchin gave the White House the $1.8 trillion written offer, another positive sign. The administration didn't immediately accept Manchin's offer, though. Now, we only have it on faith that Manchin delivered a $1.8 trillion written offer. We don't even know what that means since he kept saying 1.5 trillion, but the administration didn't accept it. Not only was it light on policy details, but it, it included the expanded child tax credit and included child, tax hikes Cinema had opposed. The administration knew that a deal without the child benefit would enrage a large group of Democratic senators while risking a spike in child poverty. Biden's aides did not reject Manchin's offer outright, either viewing it as a starting point for further talks. Okay, so they didn't have a deal. It's not clear what deal Manchin had offered, but according to the White House, it wasn't good enough, meaning that more would have to be spent. Not that, you know, they would shuffle money around. They, Democratic senators would be angry without the child tax credit, which Manchin said was incredibly inflationary, which was basically one of his reasons why he wouldn't support Build Back Better. And so they were going to try to stick it back in. OK, and here is the statement. I had a productive call with Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer earlier today, Biden said. I briefed them on the most recent discussions that my staff and I have held with Senator Manchin about Build Back Better. In these discussions, Senator Manchin has reiterated his support for Build Back Better funding at the level of the framework plan I announced in September. When that paragraph was floated, that was the paragraph that Manchin had told the White House should not include his name or should include Senator Sinema's name uh, alongside him. Again, if we are to believe this account, okay? Okay. Why would you release this statement? For what reason? The reason is to put Joe Manchin on the spot. Say he has reiterated his support for funding at my number. Meaning, don't go wobbly. I'm going to blame you. Okay? So they didn't have a deal. They wanted to put out this statement to put pressure on Manchin because they didn't have a deal. Manchin's number was was 300 billion lower, despite what this article says. And according to somebody, the White House was not warned that naming Manchin as an obstacle to a deal was a red line for the Senator. Oh, you mean it wouldn't upset someone to have the president of the United States say, you're the only reason that this won't pass publicly. That wouldn't make Manchin mad. Why would that make him mad? It's all in good fun. Dean Baker, who is this leftist moron who works at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, I mean, a sort of loudmouth jerk, says, defending the White House, it was not like this was the biggest insult in the world. The idea you would have done something good for the country, but instead will not do it because you think someone in the White House may have insulted you is kind of crazy says Dean Baker. Oh, really? So you're like negotiating and negotiating, and negotiating. You're 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 still kind of far apart, but the negotiations are supposed to continue. And then the your negotiating partner says he's already agreed to my number. He better come sit down at the table and sign this document so that we can get this done.
1: John, you know what we have to couple this with? Yes. What? Remember the story about how Biden blew up Cinema's position? At a meeting at the White House. Right. They had uh, also over Build Back Better. She had confided in him uh, separately uh, her opening number, her opening negotiating point and said, but don't bring it up when we get into the larger meeting. And they walked in there and and Biden spills the beans and Sinema got up and said, do you you want me to leave? That's right.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Do you want me to leave? Like here's. What's interesting,
1: negotiations
0: are negotiations, right? Nothing counts until you say you have a deal. And even then, it doesn't entirely count until you sign on the dotted line. So this piece argues that they had a deal. And then the White House said, issued a statement saying, we don't really have a deal yet. So everybody go call Joe Manchin and yell at him about why we don't have a deal yet. And then the idea that Manchin wouldn't go through with the deal based on the negotiating stance of the White House and that he's crazy because, of course, according to Dean Baker and everybody else, everything in this bill is so wonderful that you could only oppose it if you're a bad person. Well, that's the implicit meaning of doing what the White House did is saying Manchin's a bad person. He's bad. We're all set here and we just need you to put a little more pressure on him. Because he's a bad person and we're good people. And, you know, and so and it was it's the productive discussions here were with Pelosi and Schumer. Not with mansion,
2: the 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 corollary that you have to get to eventually after all these woe is me, poor Joe Biden stories is that eventually it's going to be Joe Biden's fault. And I'm I think we're getting to that in this piece. And now I see that in something that was published in CNN by CNN on Thursday. By Edward Isaac Dovre, Dever I'm not sure how to Isaac his name. Edward Dovere, yeah. Edward Isaac Dovere. Um, and the piece, it's very long and it's you know, it's brutal while at the same time being coddling. Um, but the subtext of it is very plain because it talks about the ways in which Joe Biden is frustrating all his very competent young staffers by being Joe Biden. He wants to do old media. He wants to do television. He wants to do print. That's not how you do it anymore, according to these young staffers who are routinely frustrated by the oldsters in their midst. They want to do, you know, new, fresh media, but they're not allowed to. They're frustrated constantly. Quote, they also agree that they're being held back by the president's own reluctance to hit harder. Steeped in both his attempt to push back uh, America back to what he insists can't be a bygone era of cooperation and his sense that a president shouldn't get petty. Um, what? How many of us were privy? Did we all imagine the idea that he called everybody who didn't agree with him segregationists? I mean, this guy has, is a, is a sharp-elbowed fellow. He's been a sharp-elbowed guy since in his entire career in politics. He's a blowhard, but he, he hits below the belt when he wants to and knows how to land a punch. The idea here that he, he doesn't
0: know how to land a punch.
2: Well, if he knew how to land a punch,
0: he, he would knock out <laughs> cinnamon and, and man. He knows how to how throw a
2: punch, I should say.
0: He knows how to swing wildly and miss. <laughs> he knows how to swing wildly and t- smash his hand into the into the guardrail on the, you know, in the corner. But
2: ultimately, and I think it's probably necessary at this point, cognitively, for Democrats to wrap their head around the idea that it's not everyone else's fault. And they probably will get there sooner rather than later.
1: Well,
0: first of all, it, this is a bizarre piece, this mansion piece. I don't want to spend this whole time talking about this one article. I mean, it's like, seven months later. I don't even know why we're reading this. Like it, 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 It's bizarre that we're reading this now. The point is that in public, what we knew is Manchin said $1.5 He wrote three op-ed pieces, I believe. One in the West Virginia paper and two in the Wall Street Journal saying my number is $1.5 and I don't like the child tax credit because I was speaking to Larry Summers who, you know, knows everything and says it's incredibly inflationary, which it is. By the way, it was a huge contributor to the inflation spike, the child tax credit, despite the fact that all you've heard about it is that it somehow eliminated child poverty in the United States in the year that it was in the year that it was imposed single handedly. So, you know, that's that's where that's where these narratives get get struck. He didn't want a child tax credit. The White House was unwilling to give up the child tax credit. So Manchin was never going to agree to a Build Back Better deal with the child tax credit permanent or for another year. He wasn't going to. It was his signature thing that he was against. This piece says the White House was unwilling to give up the child tax credit. So my whole point here is the piece itself is a Rube Goldberg machine. It says that Manchin and Biden were too far apart on policy to agree to build back better. That Manchin had made that clear in March of 2021, six weeks after the president's or eight weeks after the president's inauguration, that the number was bad. He represents a state that went 40 points for Trump. The only reason we we're even in a we were even in a position to talk about this was the eccentric results of the runoffs in Georgia, which led biden to have a senate that was 50 50 which meant that the vice president could break the tie there would have been no build back better bill there would have been no you know two trillion dollar uh coronavirus relief pad there would have been no infrastructure bill because the republicans would have had trump not been its psychotic would have held the senate in georgia and and biden wouldn't have been in this position and his entire future then rested on the one Democratic senator from a Trump state that would who you know where Trump won by forty percent, did he tailor his bill? He thinks he tailored his bill because Democrats wanted three and a half trillion and he came down 50 percent from that. But that is not that's that's him negotiating with himself on what voters in West Virginia would allow or what mansion would allow. That was his belief that he had made some major concession. Manchin was never going to agree to this bill. Maybe it was because he got offended. Maybe it wasn't because he got offended. We have to take it on faith that he had submitted a piece of paper with a $1.8 trillion number on it.
1: They're just lying to themselves. So last night, another piece went up at the Washington post and I'll give credit to someone. I don't, I don't normally praise here. Uh, Matthew Iglesias has an opinion piece titled "Joe Manchin Was Right and Democrats Should Admit It," saying he was right about inflation, he was right about Build Back Better, and and the costs, and it's it's time to come around to that to that idea. That to me would make more sense than relitigating. They're not even relitigating. Then then sort of you know trying to break down the, the, the he said, she said of this, of this ancient failure at this point. I mean, let's go, let's look at this even, even in a more
0: interesting way politically. So here we are, this again, it's not the administration doing it, it's the Washington Post writing this piece for whatever reason, they've been working on it for six months, God only knows. Two narratives emerge from 2021, failure and success. The failure is build back better, huge failure. The success is the infrastructure bill. So the infrastructure bill got, what, 67 votes in the Senate? I can't even remember now. 69?
2: Yeah, 68 or 69.
0: Okay. So huge bill, infrastructure bill, huge, trillion-dollar bill. Did they talk about the infrastructure bill? Do you hear about the infrastructure bill? It's the signature accomplishment of his presidency. He got 69 votes for a piece of legislation, for a major piece of legislation. They are consumed with their own sense of failure, right? Here we have inflation. We have inflation. We have things going wrong with crime. We have this. We have that. And we keep hearing Biden needs to be Biden. He needs to go out and tell his story. His story is the infrastructure bill. He doesn't want to tell that story. He doesn't give a shit about the infrastructure bill. None of these people cares about the infrastructure bill. They only care about their, the desiderata they did not get. Is this a psychological issue or is it a, an ideological issue? I, I don't know. Either of you can you, either of you speculate? I mean, Why does it have to be one or the other? (laughs) Well, it could be both, but so let's tease it out. Politically, uh, they should be walking around saying we did what we came here to do. We got bipartisan legislation passed to help the American people.
1: We did it. Trump's gone. He couldn't do it. I did it. We did it. Infrastructures is good governance, and that's not fun. That's not sexy. It's, I mean, it's, maybe it's, I, by the way, I think it's probably a bad bill. I don't really care.
0: I'm just saying, like, you know, I mean, it's certainly I mean, a ridiculous the amount
2: of money to inject into the economy at a time when the money supply is a problem. So uh, now you can't. Everybody take, understands yeah. and agrees. I mean, I had a bipartisan support for a reason. Everybody understands and agrees on the necessity of infrastructure and maintaining it and, you know, modernizing it. That's not controversial.
0: Right. right. The lack no, of that, controversy is, in
2: fact, very important. Right. There, that, ah, that's, you answered okay. the
0: question. Okay. So is that psychological or ideological? Think about it for a minute. Is it that you can't say I was able to work with Republicans when, you're the o- when you are politically convinced that the only way that you can get your base out is to say those people are fascists who want to undermine democracy and ruin and are destroying America? Hey, I worked with them. So you can't take credit for the one thing you did that followed your campaign promise that you would be able to change the tenor of the nature of Washington's hyper-partisan politics. And you can't even say that you did that. But this is going to hurt your 2022 campaign strategy.
2: And this sort of goes back to what we were talking about with crime and uh, Eric Adams is that this is what Joe Biden campaigned on, right? He campaigned on trying to be a boring guy, a return to normalcy under his administration, which would ne- necessarily mean uncontroversial governance, a lack of big a big mandate to do transformative things. He was supposed to be a boring figure. And they all got derailed after the Georgia election de- debacle in December of 2020, I think, or early January but either way, you know, his mandate was to not have a mandate
0: and he's fighting against his own mandate. Right. Because of the Georgia debacle. So as the as as the famous, you know, tragedian statement has it, you know, those whom the gods destroy, they first make mad. Right. So so had Trump not been crazy and had Georgia's recall election gone the way it would have gone, Biden would have been in a in a in a much would not have had the temptation to think that he could be FDR and LBJ rolled into one, a fantasy that has essentially destroyed his presidency. uh, If you think his presidency is destroyed by hubristically making him believe that he could spend 4 trillion, 7 trillion dollars without consequence.
2: So then they have to build these new realities in order to, understand the one they're they're trying to navigate currently right okay we, so get, we,
0: we should get to that we should get to that right 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 let me right, just, right. let, me, just, let um, me
2: lead into that once you're done with the, the uh, i want you
0: I to move. but i but i need first and i now have to find it because i lost it i need first to talk to you about today's advertisers and our first advertiser is bowl and branch the sheets that noah loves you love them, Noah, right Love your ball and sheets. I do. I sleep on them every night. We've heard it because, you know, they have I don't know if you know this, but they have uh, the best 100 percent organic cotton threads on earth, providing you with a superior softness and better night's sleep. Thread count is a myth. You know, you're always being told, oh, I have a 2000 thread count. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have. if They're not the best threads possible. And Bolin Branch has them because their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. Uh, these sheets are made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by three U.S. presidents. They feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They're perfect for every season. Over 10,000 stellar reviews. Bowen Branch signature sheets come in nine neutral colors in all sizes from twin up to California king. Noah, yours are what? Pewter? I can't remember what. Pewter. Yes. Pewter. One of my favorite colors. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets. 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And you get a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com promo code commentary. And it is time for me once again to recommend to you David Bonson's remarkable book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You want to understand why Joe Manchin resisted the siren song of the Build Back Better bill and what the economic ideas were that undergirded his decision to tank that bill and save America from uh, an inflationary spiral that might have been twice the size of the one that we are currently going through. Read David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. It is a primer to economic thinking that combines an understanding of human liberty, human flourishing, and, uh, and, the, uh, and, the, and the best way to organize a society with 250 lessons uh, uh, supported and undergirded by quotes from great philosophers, economists, and thinkers. Get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your books. That's David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Noah, please.
2: Yeah, so before we get into this piece that we really want to talk about, something just came across my transom that dovetails with it so so perfectly I have to bring it to the table. Justin Miller, a deputy editor of New York Magazine, publishes a piece and uh, promotes it with the following tweet. San Francisco, talking about the Chesapeake recall. San Francisco... Governed by Republicans for most of the 20th century, doesn't rest on a New Deal foundation and increasingly lacks a working class population that can bolster progressive candidates. Goes on to, in the piece, to elaborate on this theory that San, Francisco, San Francisco's population is declining. It increasingly lacks a working class population. The Black population is vanishing. The tech boom has fueled real estate prices to a degree that old line residents are lucky to buy a home, a severe housing shortage has never been alleviated. And the, the city was governed um, by Republicans up until basically 1963. So there's no legacy of social democratic, a new deal largesse. There was, there's no San Francisco version of Fiorella LaGuardia or Robert Wagner. There's just no history or legacy of this kind of rooted population of progressives with a progressive mindset. And the tech industry is very formidable and very conventional, even business friendly to such a degree that if Chesapeake Boudin loses this recall election, it's because San Francisco is too conservative.
0: Crazy. (laughs) I'm crazy for reading New York magazine. That is fantastic. What do we know about woke leftist politics in the United States? Woke leftist politics, are they supported by working-class Democrats and Black people? Or wasn't it the existence of working-class Democrats and Black people who interfered with the 2020 primary election to ensure that Joe Biden was the nominee of the Democratic Party because everybody else was woke and he wasn't? Isn't that what we learned from Jim Clyburn? Isn't that what we learned from South Carolina? There's no working class history in San Francisco. And that's why it's not woke enough. Who's woke? Justin Miller is woke. People like Justin Miller, famous working class. Black person. I don't even know who Justin Miller is, by the way, but I'm just going to presume I know who Justin Miller is uh, and I can you know, do that. Annie Hall thing of drawing the actual cliche, you know, when like uh, when when Woody Allen, you know, describes does, but his first piece... wife, Alison Portchnick, through the Ben Sean paintings and the socialist summer camps and all of this. And she says, I love being reduced to a cliche. I think we can all reduce Justin Miller <laughs>
2: to a <laughs> cliche to, like But that. you're right, though. It does rest on this notion that in the, the absence of uh, a robust um, grassroots African-American political mo- movement is what's going to undo this this defense uh, district attorney rather whereas everything we understand about this political moment is that it's african-americans particularly in urban centers that resent and are frustrated by and are lashing out against this permissive view of prosecution and police and policing crime
0: well
1: except the, in San know, Mar- yeah go ahead Dave. it's Sorry. all very interesting because you know for months now we've been saying that there's been there's an act of counter-revolution to the 2020 wokeness and social justice and all the rest of it. And now with things like this, we're beginning to see how the sort of hard left are dealing with this um, and to what degree they are able to ingest it and to what degree they are in total denial. Um, And they're not seeing exactly what you say, John, that, This is a rejection among liberals uh, who don't believe in this garbage, who see how it has actively degraded their own lives. Yeah, of course, conservatives have been rejecting from the start. We know that. Um, But what tipped the scales is the rejection among their own. And they absolutely cannot face that. I I just think that,
0: and we're about to, talk about what dovetails with what dovetails right um i just think that you have this bizarre uh we're now in the pre we're in the pre-excuse uh mode for explaining the uh coming electoral disasters that are going to befall democrats and leftists in 2022 and maybe 2024 so what we have is this gigantic mythologizing effort no 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 there could have been build back better but you know the white house didn't understand that you know it was writing it was going to issue a paragraph that that made joe biden made joe manchin hurt his feelings and 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 so that's why that happened gee you know we're almost there you know and then somebody you know spilled some coffee on joe manchin's jacket and that was the end of a you know of a wondrous two trillion dollar spending and now we have chesapeake is going to get recalled because san francisco is too conservative a city and let's talk about the last thing we wanted to talk about today which is the excerpt from obama jacket carrier dan pfeiffer's new book uh in vanity fair uh Dan, Dan Pfeiffer, a longtime Senate aide who then worked in Obama's communications department and as part of the Pod Save America, uh, what, are, what are they called? Something media was the crooked, cro- cro- crooked media um, uh, universe. And he's now written some kind of memoir, advice book, whatever. And the piece in Vanity Fair, which I commend to your attention, is called Why Do Democrats Suck at Messaging? I believe, is that I'm looking for the... Hold on. Why do Democrats suck at messaging? Which gives you a sense of the tone, the high and the elevated tone that Dan Pfeiffer brings to the piece. Um, you know, in his new book Battling the Big Lie, Pfeiffer diagnoses the party's messaging troubles and calls for a bigger megaphone. Noah, please give us a... As, as they say on the Subbeacon pod give us a big boy review of the
2: of well, this piece he recounts uh, his travails as an um, as a uh, advisor to the president who would routinely have to interact with donors and voters and that was very frustrating because everybody has an opinion on what you do as anybody in politics encounters this—that everybody feels like they can talk to you about politics because they have the, you know, they're invested in politics, which is of course true.
0: Yeah. How dare they? <laughs> right. How dare they very go and say, "I have this. some ideas." When they're talking to somebody who works with, like, this, this is like, "Let me just do my job, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna run America. You just sit there and keep quiet. Give us a million dollars, and I'm not even gonna listen to what you have to say." That—that's the tone in which Dan Pfeiffer writes this, right? And it takes several many paragraphs to get
2: to the point, um, but he eventually does, at which point he settles on the notion that Democrats have a messaging problem in part because the party's just too successful. It's more diverse, ideologically, demographically, and geographically than Republicans. How does a party that encompasses such broad range of views from Joe Manchin to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thread these the thread this needle and merge the distinctions and, and get everybody on the same page? It's just impossible, and there are structural inequities that make it very difficult for Democrats to get their message out. Notably, and in part, the idea that very much like San Francisco being a all too conservative city, you, you didn't notice over the last you know half century that San Francisco is very conservative, but now you do. It turns out the media landscape in this country is reliably conservative, very Republican to, the, to a degree that crowds out Democratic efforts to field a unified messaging. So Democrats are always playing catch up. They're always responding. They're never setting the table. They are never. They don't have the ability to set the agenda, especially in the press. And as a result, they're just always behind the eight ball when it comes to talking about issues and talking about politics. That's what you were asked to believe as, uh, from apparently the entirety of this book, but at least this excerpt that's published in Vanity Fair.
0: Okay, so let me let me let me read a little bit from this. Okay, Democratic messaging is not perfect. Far from it. It's often too wonky and wordy. Our party leaders are all over 70. None of them rose to the pinnacle of party leadership based on their communications chops. They are generationally disconnected from the party's base, but their problem isn't their age. It's that each has spent more than half their years serving in Congress where authentic human speaking goes to die. Let's say hypothetically that all these problems were solved. The Democrats got better messages and messengers. The talking points were sharp as talking points could be. And cable news was flooded with the best people saying the best things. It would help, but it still wouldn't matter much. Why? Imagine two armies doing battle. One of these armies is equipped with tanks and stealth bombers. The other shows up to the battle wielding pocket knives. Of course, team pocket knife gets its ass kicked. After the battle it returns home and the first question from the gathered townsfolk is, Why didn't you have a better strategy? Did the did team pocket knife have the best plan? Maybe, maybe not. Ultimately, no one, whether Patton von Clausewitz or Captain America could devise a plan for a pocket knife to beat a tank.
2: What is this also explains his sorry, just his his understanding of counterinsurgency warfare explains the rise of ISIS under Barack Obama.
0: Pretty, (laughs) pretty effective. Okay, what what is the what is the pocket knife and what is the tank? quote, the Republicans have a cable television network whose sole raison d'etre is to attack Democrats and promote pro-GOP talking points. The conservative media dwarfs the progressive media in size and scope, and even then it's an apples to oranges comparison. The bulk of the media on the right is an adjunct of the party apparatus. Much of the media on the left is focused on holding Democrats accountable. I'm going to read that again. Much of the media on the left is focused on holding Democrats accountable and or moving the party's agenda in a more progressive direction. This is, of course, an admirable and necessary task, but it doesn't do much to help Democratic candidates and causes win the messaging battle against Republicans come election time. Abe, Noah, Republicans have a cable television network whose sole raison d'être is to attack Democrats and promote pro-GOP talking points. Okay, what is the missing element here? The Democrats have. MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Associated Press, The Chicago Tribune, The Los Angeles Times, Condé Nast, Hearst, Meredith, Gannett. Um, the missing the idea. Here. The idea that that's a pocket knife, and that Fox which has 3 million viewers a night
1: is the, is the stealth bomber with the tank. The missing element here is everything else. <laughs> the Democrats have everything else. You're just talking universities. about new They exactly, they have yeah. universities. Hollywood. they have Hollywood, everything we see on TV and in movies and here and in, in popular music and popular, they have everything.
2: And the idea that conservative media never does backbiting or infighting is deranged. Just, it, yeah, it demands that you media, not consume any conservative media ever to believe that.
0: I mean, so I'm reading this and I, just as Dan Pfeiffer essentially has the view that Republicans know what Democrats know, which is that the good, the true, and the beautiful are all supported by progressive policies. And they don't like progressive policies because they will favor people they don't like. So they go at them with disinformation campaign. They deliberately and in bad faith destroy good, true, and beautiful things because what they want is the actual promotion of evil. Okay? And so I think that he believes this and therefore,
1: I mean, I mean, so that's almost, what he thinks, right? OK, go ahead. I'm almost tempted to read the book because I, I, I'm sort of I, I would love to know how he tries to put meat on these bones how, with the case he makes that that the re- Republican uh, that conservative media dwarfs liberal media.
0: I don't know I mean, if, and I'm if not he sure, believes I, this.
1: Yeah, I don't know that he makes the case, but the
0: idea that there are two separate worldviews, though, I mean, they're not so wildly separate, but that there are two separate worldviews, that there is one worldview that says that uh, precisely understood uh, the good working order of America requires the sustained intervention of government. And another that says that the sustained intervention of government can do more harm than good and needs to be managed and controlled. And that these worldviews are different and that the party, the policies that that emerge from them are different and that we have a fight in which uh, people, a lot of people are kind of in the middle. They want government intervention on the things that they care about and they want government out of the things that they don't care about. And it depends on where you stand. This is what American politics is. That's American politics. All things being equal, Democrats and liberals want more government intervention. And all things being equal, conservatives want less. Okay. And that policy flows therefrom. There's no conspiracy, there's no bad faith. I mean, when it comes down to it, people then come up with strategies to, you know, to, to defeat the other side and they come up with strategies to make themselves look better. That is the truth of American politics. That is the dynamic of American politics. And we go back and forth, just as we've gone back and forth across the 21st century, right? Bush, but Bush loses the Senate, right? Bush wins by, by 930 votes, and then Republicans have the, have a 50 Then they lose the Senate because Jim Jeffords quits in uh, the spring of 2021. They lose the Senate. 9-11 happens. They get the, ha- they get the Senate back. Uh, They 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 uh, they crush it in the House uh, and then they go on to win in 2004. Then what happens? Then there's a fight inside the Republican Party fights for the next, you know, because Iraq is going wrong. Bush appoints Harriet Myers, who spikes Harriet Myers, other people on the right, who spikes Bush's immigration platform, people on the right. Right. in 2006, how did Democrats get control of the house? And, you know, they, they run conservative leading Democrats with a lot of, with a lot of medals on their jackets and on their, you know, on on their fronts uh, to, to, to win the midterm election there. Then Obama wins a huge election. Then Republicans win a huge midterm. Then Obama, you know, gets reelected. Then, then Republicans win in 2014. Then, then, then uh, Trump surprises everybody and wins in 2016 and then and then Democrats win in 2018 and win the presidency in 2020. What megaphone what I mean what 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 the hell is Dan Pfeiffer talking about American history over the last 20 years is a history of a very divided country in which power shifts back and forth. And when Democrats lose, it's because their message is bad and their policies are bad. And when Republicans lose, it tends to be kind of the same. Their policies don't do what they're supposed to do or they look bad at, 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 uh, at uh, you know, at effectuating them or whatever. And this notion that Democrats suck at messaging, we're, we're like we're in a world in which everybody think in which an enormous numbers of people now believe that if you say, that a person with two X chromosomes is a woman, even if he, she says she's a man, that you're a monster transphobic, you deserve to lose your job, and you should probably be prosecuted for a hate crime. That's,
1: you know, I don't know what that's a megaphone.
0: <laughs> that's not it's a, me- a megaphone right.
1: that changes reality, right? And not only is there, is the liberal megaphone sufficient to, um, get out their own message of who they are and what they believe in they're better at, at defining who republicans are right i mean republicans have been largely uh, demonized for for decades because this this characterization of them by liberals as either warmongers or gun maniacs or Uh, religious theocrats or or whatever, bigots, this is their messaging on Republicans.
2: Yeah. If the megaphone wasn't sufficient to create a reality distortion field, this book would be a career killer because you wouldn't be able to make this kind of assertion without destroying any credibility you have for whatever audience you're writing for. It would just be understood
0: that you were crazy. But I mean, it, it, so psychological again, back to psych- psychology versus ideology. The reason that they say that re- Republicans, you know, are control the discussion with their with their howitzer and their tank versus the pocket knife, uh, with their magical means of disinformation, distortion, Facebook now being, you know, creating conservative realities and Fox News. There's a whole network. I mean. Uh, you know, I have a contract with MSNBC and so does Noah and I'm not, I'm going to leave them out of this, but, you know, so you think that MSNBC is an entire network dedicated to running down Republicans if, if, and, 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 and conservatives, if, if that's not, you know, what, what uh, Fox is on the other side, they need this because if you don't believe that there is some unwarranted magic uh, propping up the Republican reality, unwarranted magic, and then evil intent, racism, uh, depredation of the environment for greedy profit taking. Uh, you know, uh, forcing women to be barefoot and pregnant and not get abortions, stuff like that. If you if you don't believe that there is something untoward, then you have to face the fact that a lot of people in this country don't believe what you believe and that they're willing to stop you from believing it. And that a lot of, a lot of what you believe, frankly, uh, is um, not demonstrably true. It's not, you know, prima facie true. And it may be nice that you want to spend your life thinking that anybody who thinks other than you is a monster. But, uh, you know, in politics, you're sort of supposed to understand If you are to do politics effectively, that the other guy has a case to make by definition, (laughs) because because he's he may win. And if he only wins because he cheats, then you're just like a five year old who plays Monopoly, loses and says you're cheating. You know, I mean,
1: that's not how grownups view the world. So, you know, John, you said that this is all striking you as pre excuse making for, for what's going to happen during, after, uh, at midterms. Um, I think they're working themselves up into another full blown conspiracy theory. I mean, I think we're going to see, I I don't know what the details are going to be, but when, when, when Democrats get, get a shellacking, um, there's going to be all sorts of crazy ideas coming out about, about how this went wrong and, none of them are going to have to do with accountability and uh, the responsibility of the losing party.
0: I mean, Noah, just to conclude here. So we started with the poor Biden, you know, he just can't get a break. Biden's been president since January of 2021. It is now June of 2022. Inflation is running at eight or 9% annually. Uh, You know, like what else matters? I mean, if you sort of like want to go and say, you know, look, he handled Ukraine. Well, maybe he's handled Ukraine. Well, handled Afghanistan badly, but he handled Ukraine. Well, blah, 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 blah. Americans purchasing power has been reduced by close to 10%. Every Americans like, like, Really? We're going to have an argument over why Build Back Better did, didn't pass? I mean, I don't even know what case he has to make for himself. I Americans purchasing power has been, you know, when in, when unemployment rises from 5 to 10%, it means that 5% of Americans, uh, another 5% of Americans are out of work, and that's horrible. When inflation goes up to 10%, 300, I'm mean, 300, 175 million households, whatever it is in the United States, every single household sees their purchasing power decline by 10%. Now, if you're wealthy, that does not have that much of an effect on you. But of course, most people aren't wealthy. So unemployment is a terrible thing. It's a monstrous thing. Inflation is a political calamity monstrosity for anybody who who supervises it or and 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 can be properly blamed for some of its emergence
2: yeah i mean it's a very simple story right um americans are dissatisfied with the state of their personal economy in a very micro level and they're looking for parties to blame and it's a very easy search when you spent the last 18 months trying to and failing to spend more money in the history of this country has ever spent in one single blow, but also trying to spend a significant amount of money that on you know individual priorities like this uh, infrastructure bill and succeeding. So they, everybody has this story straight. It couldn't be more simple. And so you need a more complex narrative because in, in our business, there's a bias towards complexity. It makes it's, it's better for you personally, to be able to you know, see the hitting workings of the world here and, and create a, a complicated narrative that you have to explain, that's good for you as, in your your personal brand, especially if you're a storyteller. But the story could not be more simple. So to Abe's point about building conspiracy theories, there's also a professional advantage, in building out a much more complex narrative around what's about to happen and what has happened, which is why conservative, you know, San Francisco has to be conservative and the media has to be Republican and all these other things that have to explain a very simple story in
0: terms that are overly complex. I just uh, looked up uh, Justin Miller and his uh, photo. And yes, I, uh, I, I literally uh, could have described his entire life history to you like Alvy Singer describing Alison Porchnick, um, so I was I was I was I was right about that, and you know basically reducing yourself to a to a cliche uh, itself is a part of the element of Dan Pfeiffer's book and the Mansion piece and everything that we've been talking about today, which is the, you know it's all it's like a, a mad lib it's like uh, fill in Republican fill in evil Republican adverb fill in evil Republican adjective fill in Fox you know fill in Rush I mean they can't even mention Rush Limbaugh anymore since he died fill in Hannity you know fill in Alex Jones fill in this fill in that and then you know pre- present your mad lib because no matter what it is those terms are all going to be in the article um and uh and and they can comfort themselves with this you know uh comfort porn uh that is not gonna save them from from the reckoning because as i say there's all this and then there is the fact that the american individual americans purchasing power has declined by 10 percent over the course of the biden presidency
2: that could not be a simpler narrative they're yeah they're less secure less safe less uh, more anxious about their economic conditions and it could not be easier to understand
0: why this is happening Right. so thank you for listening we still miss Christine and we will continue to miss Christine but she will be back in September for Abe and Noah and John Potthortz keep the candle burning